Lab listeners, and thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Greenlight Podcast looks at the trope of the perfect victim and how it contributes to the ongoing power of rape myths in our wider society. We speak with the fantastic Louise O'Neill and the absolutely amazing Katrina Daly, whose powerful works confront and deconstruct this figure and draw attention to the wider peer and family networks involved in the aftermath of sexual violence. And in case you haven't heard of these two legends, Louise O'Neill is the author of five novels, including Asking For It and After The Silence. She has a weekly column with the Irish Examiner. And Katrina Daly is a playwright from Dublin. Her plays include Duck Duck Goose and Test Dummy, which was nominated for an Irish Times Theatre Award for Best New Play, and Normal, which was also nominated for a Fish Amble New Writing Award and the first Fortnite Award. She's currently under commission with the Abbey Theatre. So Charlotte, you are the drama expert at Active Consent. Do you want to start us off explaining why we were so keen to have Louise and Katrina on this particular episode? Thanks so much, Caroline. So yes, I am the drama expert within the Active Consent team, but so much more. I also head up our creative arts and communications unit and think a lot about how do we get our message, uh, the message of our research, our findings of our research out to audiences. But I comment it from that perspective of the arts first and foremost. And for me, when I think about the works of art that matter to me most in my life, they're the ones that stopped me in my tracks that literally allowed a lens to come into being that helped me understand things that had been in circulation happening in new ways and kind of penetrate to the center of an issue. And these two works on the subject of consent in my entire life, I have been reading and thinking on these issues since I was probably 13 years old. And when I read Louise's novel for the first time in 2015, and I remember where I was in the house where I was living when I read it, the way in which it mobilized this whole network of relationships, the way in which it took seriously and followed a survivor on their journey past that moment, past even, you know, okay, we're going to press charges. We're going to try to do this thing. It brought on this path where it's the long healing journey. It's not the easy healing journey. There's something so unflinching, immediate, and just heartbreaking about the novel. And it said so many things I had never seen said in that way before. I felt the same way when I was lucky enough to be contacted by Fish Amble and asked to respond to Duck Duck Goose and the script, because in the work that then in the time since I read Louise's novel that we've been doing with active consent, this question of how do we mobilize the perspective of the bystander? How do we ask how these issues continue to be perpetuated, not only for the person who commits the crime, but the people around them. And I had never seen that perspective brought to life in the way that Katrina's play did. And I just thought, oh my God, the the, the two best works on this topic coming from within Irish literature and theater are really an incredible thing. So I find it incredible and so hopeful that the two, I think, most important and intelligent works on this topic in all of literature, in my opinion, both come from Irish female authors. And I just thought we have to have them in conversation to talk about how the works speak to each other and to hear more about what these incredible women have to say about this issue. So no pressure, Louise and Katrina there after that glowing introduction. Um, I suppose like after that, after the way Charlotte is describing it, I suppose we might be really interested in kind of exploring what brought you to tell that story of the imperfect victim and the the ripples of sexual violence and we might go to Louise first on that one there. I mean the idea for asking for it I think like 
there are multiple strands to that. Um, for the actual story itself, the structure of it, um, I think I had heard about two cases in America. Um, one was the Steubenville case and the other one was the Maryville case. Um, and, you know, they had happened in very different areas um, of the states, but the similarities between the two of them were really striking. Um, you know, that it was a small town where the local football team were treated like gods, a party, a girl had too much to drink, passed out and then was um, gang raped by members of the local football team. And I had been watching, I think it was CNN um, reporting on the Steubenville case and the reporter, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, said something like it was a terrible day in court today to see these young men have, you know, their promising futures ruined. And like the hairs in the back of my neck stood up because I think for the first time I really understood what the term rape culture meant. I'd heard that term so many times kind of within feminist circles. And I always thought, I'm not sure if I really buy into this. Like, I feel like most people understand that rape is, you know, the second most serious crime in our judicial system after murder. And I think that moment I thought, oh, yes. So young men or the perpetrators have promising futures that must be protected. And women or the victims, you know, have past that are sort of used against them um so I was really I suppose at that point I was like okay I want to write something that is similar to the story but set in Ireland um and I had read so many other books you know that dealt with rape and that dealt with um sexual violence and I was really struck by how often how likable the main characters were and how easy they were to root for um and that you know they tended to sort of be very you know, innocent and sort of, you know, had never had sex before, kind of all of these tropes, I suppose, um, that, you know, I suppose contribute to that myth of the perfect victim. Um, and I found that really harmful um, because I suppose having had sexual trauma myself, a big part of it was, well, I was drinking and I was wearing a short skirt and I went, and these were what I was saying to myself. I was like, well, I went back to the, the house and I went into that room and like, quote unquote, I was asking for it. Um, so I just think, trying to think about that more critically, I thought I really want to create a character that, I suppose, just undermines that idea um, of the perfect victim. Because as I have said in multiple talks that I've given since, is that, you know, people that we might not like are also victims of sexual violence. And actually our dislike of them um, is sort of irrelevant, you know, that if they have been the subject of this crime, if they have been raped or assaulted, they're just as deserving of being heard and being believed and being supported as someone who, you know, might conform more readily to this idea of the perfect victim, whatever that is. Absolutely. Yeah. Like really important to, to have that narrative in there that, you know, you can be a terrible person and a really mean girl like in your novel and still be deserving of sympathy and empathy as well. And yeah. then Katrina over on on your side you know it's almost like it's the perfect predator this person you know everyone's talking about what he has to lose and his friends and everything else like how how did you approach this idea of the stereotypes around the perpetrator and the victim um i don't know i suppose um i kind of was getting fed up of uh i think it was around it was uh, the first trump election in 2016 when that video of him came out of 
uh, speaking to Billy Bush kind of back backstage about grabbing someone's pussy or whatever it was. Um, and I was quite disturbed by how a lot of the men in my life weren't disgusted. And it's not that they weren't, they thought it was okay, but they were kind of like, what did you expect? Um, and that really, really pissed me off because I was like, this is absolutely vile and, you know, we're supposed to just kind of uh, uh, go along with it. So I felt the language thing and the language that um, that men I know and love use casually without realising the impacts it, it has on other people was, was something that was a real big driving force for me. Um, but in terms of... Uh, in, t- in terms of the other stuff there was that but then there was also I, I'm always a bit worried um one thing that really bugs me um with uh narrative and and sexual violence sexual trauma is that the perspective is almost always from the victim and while that is very useful and very important I sometimes feel the more emphasis that's given on that the more it then becomes the victim's problem or it certainly appears that way because then it's well you know what can the victim do and I I suppose I wanted to write something I, di- I didn't necessarily want to write from the view of um a, a rapist but I wanted to write uh from the view of somebody who is who, who 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 is close to a rapist because I suppose I felt um okay if 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 900 people come to see my play um, you know, there will be a few people who have experienced sexual violence and sexual assault and, and rape. Um, there may be an even smaller amount who've committed those crimes, may, maybe a bigger amount. But actually, m- the position that most of us find ourselves in is the bystander um, and, and having to take kind of those actions ourselves. So I just thought that would be an interesting kind of conversation for an audience to have with each other and themselves about what, 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 what to do in, the, in, those, in those circumstances. So hearing you both talk, I'm really struck by, you know, when we, this impulse to focus on, okay, how do we tell a story other than the person who survived the incident? How do we tell the story of the person who, who survives the incident in a way that doesn't just have to depend on their perfection or their, you know, perfect intentions or what have you. And we have found in our research, we did a survey last year with secondary school students, over 600 students in the survey, and we piloted our consent workshop with over a thousand students. And we found as a pattern again and again, that people, when we're thinking about consent or non-consent, we're focusing on the actions or the intentions of the person who is the receiver of the act rather than the initiator, right? So what we're saying here is drawn out, is borne out through the data and not only through what we're observing or, or, or seeing anecdotally, which I think is really important. And this survey was last year, you know, which in the context of, you know, as we talked about it, asking for it came out in 2015 itself was responding to and building on decades of activism in this area in Ireland and elsewhere. Um, And then of course, Katrina's play came out this year. I'm really interested by Louise, how the novel came out in 2015. In 2017, we see consent come into Irish law. Last year, we see Coco's law come into law, outlawing intimate image abuse. In the intervening years, you're speaking out about the novel, you produced the Asking for a Documentary for RTE, and I'd love to hear your perspective, I suppose, on what life has been like after the novel, seeing those changes in Irish society, seeing more support in the higher education system for consent education. Um, you know, do you think we have made progress, and where are the places you think we still need to go? Um, I mean... 
I think we've definitely made progress. You know, I mean, when I when I wrote the book and when I was first doing interviews for it, so that was kind of when it came out, I think August, September 2015, like so much of what I was doing was not even really touching on the novel itself or the story of the novel. It was what is rape culture? What is consent? Um, and I, I really doubt now that if I was doing an interview that I would be asked to explain what consent is. Like, I do think that there's a much more, I suppose, of uh, an understanding there. Um, and I found it really, like when I was researching, you know, I went to um, speak to Mary Crilly at the Sexual Violence Centre in Cork, and she was just an incredible, an incredible help. Um, and, you know, she would have said, like, obviously there's a massive shift in society. Like when they first set up um, the centre in Cork, I think it was at like 1985 or 1984. Um, and she said there was protests, you know, that people were so horrified at the thought that there might be a centre where people could go and disclose these experiences and I think probably because there was a conflation of rape and sex which are obviously two very very different things um so I often felt like I suppose the the backlash or the kind of the the resistance that I was meeting which I definitely was sort of <laughs> for most of my career that there was a real discomfort with um with talking around these subjects I always felt like well I'm not I'm not dealing with that level um that let's say she was in the 80s like I felt like I was sort of standing on the shoulders of, of giants really um and I also feel like there was a readiness to have this conversation you know as we said the book came out in 2015 and Me Too was like 2017 and you know Me Too didn't come out of nowhere like you know those conversations were being had people were beginning to I suppose talk more openly about their experiences I know like the everyday sexism project um was really I think begin beginning to sort of collate those that people could see how prevalent they were um so there was definitely I think a shift happening but there's definitely there's of course there's still progress that needs to be made you know and um, it's still really angers me that we are still sort of having conversations around like sex education that there isn't you know like there isn't a comprehensive inclusive sex education in all schools um in this country regardless of religious orientation like when i was in school we had someone come in when i was in my leaving cert um year so 2003 to sort of do like a little skit about um staying virgins until you were married and the importance of being chased or whatever like just nonsense stuff um and it just is it sort of beggars belief that now I'm talking to, you know, young women and young men who are 18, 19, to, you know, even younger than that. And they're like, oh, no, we didn't have any sort of sex education in school either. It, I just I cannot believe that we are still here because I really feel that if we had a proper sex education program, that you could really tackle this issue and make like huge systemic changes within one generation and the reluctance to do that and the amount of you know people who will be hurt in the time that it takes to do that is, is maddening yeah 100% maddening and because it's just it's the same old same old in our society you get a few steps forward and then we have a few a few back but Katrina with your play you know you you 
talked about something that is part of that modern sex education that we need but wasn't necessarily there you know as Louise was saying back in 1985 when you know the, the sexual violence center has been set up like the issue of whatsapp groups and image-based sexual abuse was just not spoken about it wasn't thought about that people would have these casual groups and, and sharing these images and being really vile and you know causing harm that way like we didn't have the language properly for things like this so do you want to talk us through why you included that in the play and any particular responses that you had from people um, and how, I suppose, like, because it's interesting looking at it from the perpetrator side, as you were saying. Um, yeah, I suppose, um, obviously, the Belfast rape trial was kind of a massive moment in, in Irish society. And it, I think it kind of changed the game in terms of our reaction to things because it wasn't, it, yes, it was a court case, we were all once those whatsapp messages were released and like they had i remember very distinctly they had been screenshotted and sent around in 2016 um after the initial um event and then they were published by the newspapers in the north then in 2018 when the when the case uh was was ongoing but i suppose it didn't matter anymore what actually happened because we all kind of i felt seen proof of of how how their attitudes to, towards women were and and how vile it was. I suppose we've just gotten so casual with um with how we speak about other people in those private communications without realizing that they're not really private at all. And you know, I mean, I think it's everybody's nightmare at this point that one day you know the internet will be released publicly <laughs> and all our private thoughts about <laughs> everybody will kind of. I, there's something that happens every couple of months where somebody says, you know, if you screenshot on Instagram, people now get a, a notification, and everybody kind of you know shivers like, oh no. But um, but yeah, I suppose that's just something in the modern age that we're dealing with all the time is is um is how private. Are, are these social media sites and um like again with with the whatsapp thing it just kept being relevant like at several points throughout like i think i did nine drafts of the play and at several points throughout the different drafts i was like there's something else about whatsapp things being released and you know and that's really scary um uh even the the month the play was was produced something else had happened about whatsapp messages being being um published in a newspaper and yeah it's it's a it's it's an element to it I think that's that's only going to get more and more relevant and um and publicized I think so so I'm just I'm really struck by a couple of things one in terms of this changing role of technology in reading back over asking for it I was really struck by Louise in the novel how there's you know and when I read it at the time it was like up to the minute you know that there is this precedence of images being circulated online what is the legal precedent how do we deal with it or talk with it as a society and reading about that even from five years on as kind of new and then realizing how used to that kind of carry on now that we have become used to you know just drove home for me again how quickly things change and then keeping up with not only pushing away at that brick wall of rape culture and sexual violence but then how we're negotiating that through technology. 
but at the end of the day, you both are artists, right? And I was thinking about the end, the, the, the afterward to asking for it, where Louise says, you know, we need to talk and talk until the, the all the Emmas of the world feel supported and understood until they feel like they are believed. We've talked a lot in this conversation, not only about the works that you've made, but about the broader issue, but you are at the end of the day, artists. So I would just love to hear from Louise first and then Katrina, what you feel having written these works, having brought these works out in the world in this way, is the role of the art in tracking these, these changes in, in how, I suppose, rape culture, consent are, are, are coming across our daily lives? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose having written Asking For It, it has really, I mean, I always, you know, really believed in the power of art. Um, you know, I've always felt that, that it, I think it creates a sense of empathy um, when you're experiencing art in whatever way that is, you know, I mean, if you're reading a book or if you're watching a play or if you're watching a, a, a TV series or whatever, I suppose, because you have to, you have to really, I suppose, go through that journey with the main character. You have to sort of walk in their shoes with them. And that creates compassion and empathy, even if you don't intend to kind of have that when you go in um, to the experience. So, I mean, when I was writing it, I, you know, I think there are certain things that as an artist that you, you're constantly coming back to um, and that you're constantly kind of working out. And I think often those are things that you are struggling with or tackling or dealing with in your own life, you know, in your personal life. And I think it's very difficult to be a, um, a woman or to exist um, in the world in a in a female body and not think about sexual violence um because since we were children you know that has been something that we have been conditioned to worry about um and to think about um and i think after asking for it was released and i you know i first started getting the emails um you know from people who had read it and wanting to share their experience of the book and then after the play was released it was it was very similar as well and I was actually, um, I was speaking to someone, I was at a writer's retreat centre in Monaghan, and then um, she had said that she had been at the play, um, and that she, she when, when it was finished, she heard a woman in, um, in the seat, um, or sorry, the row um, uh, before her, turned to her friend when it was finished, and she said, you know, I am going to report the sexual abuse. And I think there's something so incredibly moving about that, um, that, and I, I think that is, you know, that's that's what, you know, as an artist, I think that you can only you can only dream of, I suppose, that, that your work would would have that impact or that it would resonate. Um, it would resonate in that way. So, yeah, I feel very, like, very humbled by it, really. And Katrina, picking up on that, then you've just had your play all over the country. You've got to observe audiences taking it in firsthand, at least at some locations. You know, what has that experience been like and how has that affected the place you think that arts and culture may have in forwarding these conversations? Um, yeah, that it was really interesting to do that tour um, and, and, and even to do it in two different places in Dublin was interesting in and of itself. Um, I suppose what I think, um, just to mirror kind of everything kind of Louise has already said, but it, it's just, I suppose it's a safe space to have uncomfortable conversations. Um, and I know the, I know uh, 
after every performance of Duck Duck Goose, it was deeply uncomfortable in the audience um, bank, particularly for me watching everybody else be that uncomfortable. Um, but I suppose I, I felt I had I had done my job because you should be unsettled and um, you, you shouldn't know what to say, really, you know, um, because uh, it, it is a direct challenge to the audience. Um, but I suppose as well, like I think with with Duck Duck Goose, um, it does ask questions that I felt a lot of people were not comfortable being asked. Um, and as a result, I had some pretty strange reactions after it. And I think what I found most interesting was some people like I, I, I personally think like, you know, the, the play is ambiguous and it's ambiguous for people to go and make up their own minds. So, you know, it's not for me to tell them what they what they should feel or think. But um, what I found strange was um, like I always felt what I what my voice as a writer within it was quite obvious what I was saying. But for I, I had I was approached by a couple of people who who were annoyed, I would say annoyed at me almost because it didn't reach maybe the conclusion that they had wanted it to reach. Um, but ultimately, I was more concerned about being grounded in real life. Um, and ultimately, this is happening all of the time where the right verdict isn't reached. And um, you do just have to live with your decisions as a bystander and and, and, and the consequences of that. Um, so, like, I had felt that, you know, that was my job within it. And uh uh, and and I was taken aback myself by people being annoyed at me. Like actually, I found that was quite um, uh, quite narrow minded more than anything else. Um, but yeah, uh, but good for them to feel that way in themselves. Mm -hmm. That you know, um, that it didn't work out the way they wanted it to work out, and and that there are you know there is a different kind of story within that that exists. I think that is the frustrating part of working in this area sometimes that we don't get the results that we would like and that we feel in our hearts that we know would be the right decision. But one, one thing I found really frustrating in both your stuff, in a good way, of course, um, the amount of denial that was there. And this happens so much in our society and it's so frustrating. You know, Louise, in, in your book, you know, Emma, she denies, you know, for other people and everyone just denies that everything happens. It's just stay quiet, just stay quiet. Um, and then in, in, in yours, Katrina, you know, it was, it was the, the main per the main guy was like, you know, oh, it just doesn't happen. And he, he knows it. He he knows it deep down and he's confronted when he goes on the dates and they start talking and he's realizing it but again it's just denial 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 and it, it's like why are we so keen to deny the realities of sexual violence especially when it's happening to us I know you mentioned earlier Louise M. Steubenville and that's you know it's almost like this abstract thing in a different country and we read about it in the media and it's very filtered down and stuff like that but when it's our friends and when it's our friends especially who are the perpetrators we it's kind of hard to come in on that and talk about that charlotte you've you've thoughts on that i do yeah and i mean one of the most master like i fell in love with louise's book from almost the beginning of it but then one of my favorite masterful moves where you begin to challenge the way these this kind of storytelling happens or resist the kind of simple endings or outcomes that you've also spoken about in your reflections on the novel and how it's been received but the moment early in the novel is when jamie 
is also the character of Jamie is also a survivor of sexual violence, but chooses not to disclose Emma, the the main character pushes her or kind of influences her not to disclose but then Jamie never does. And what I loved about the space that your novel makes is that that people are going to make different choices about what to tell, how to heal, how to move forward or not move forward. So that, you know, yeah, we're in denial about levels of sexual violence. We may be have trouble naming what has happened to us, but there has to be space for all those outcomes because we see the cost on Emma. We see the cost to the character of Jane in speaking out. And I think too, you know, I find in these conversations they're seeing art around rape and sexual violence. We want to sensationalize rape and sexual violence. We want to come to easy conclusions. We want an end. And both of you refuse that in so many ways. And I never read anything more true. And just thank you for that. And I suppose kind of going back to the discomfort thing again, and and I, I suppose it's having to um, particularly, I think it's it's a huge. You guys will know the the definite figures better than I will. But like, um, uh, people who's who's rapists and uh, um, they're they're generally quite known to the victim. And I suppose if you disclose, it's generally about somebody that is in within your circle, within your realm. So it's having to admit that maybe your own judgment is wrong and your own perception of somebody is wrong. So it's. And it's also, I suppose, it's um, it's an opening of Pandora's box. It's it's the opening of a can of worms that, like, once you, as a as a bystander, anyway, take that seriously, that something is is about to change forever. Like, it's not just something that you can just say casually. Um, did you do this to, or you know, it, it's it it really does. It, it's going to upend everything. So I I think um that denial definitely comes from just not wanting to 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 um uh, to deal with it. Um, I know uh in the speech in Duck Duck Goose in Marie's uh when she's on the bus, um it's it's a load of people as she's being sexually assaulted, kind of. Um, just turn turn around and some literally just move away from it so they don't have to deal with it because they don't and like and I suppose that's like uh, not wanting to what will happen to me if I get involved what will happen to to whatever but I think that's um it's a really hurtful part of it that like it not only are you being sexually assaulted but everybody else on the bus is completely ignoring it um and and not even not even telling the driver but um but yeah and I, I think it's just um if, if we could shake that out that would be kind of the, the 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 first the first step I think yeah for sure and I know with Louise with yours it's set in a really small little town and that's really hard as well because everyone knows everyone you know you're t- you're writing about the GAA and you know all being linked in like that's really hard and you can imagine I suppose why the denial is there because that's a lot of ripples in a community yeah. Well, I remember as a teenager, like, you know, me and my friends and I would have this conversation, like, what would you do if you were raped? And like now I just think, my God, what a grim sort of conversation to be having. But it was almost like, well, this will probably happen to us. So, you know, what would you do? And like for most of us, the answer was, I think it would just be easier to pretend like it didn't happen Um, because you know, the thought of, as you said, the ripple effect, you know, 
the thought of, I think, stepping forward and going to the guards um, and I suppose having everybody talking about it and everybody sort of viewing you in that way and everyone seeing you as a victim and like the way in which we look at victims of sexual violence in our, in our society it is not a kind one. You know, and I think even at that very young age, there was awareness of, oh, no, we really don't want that. We don't want that experience. Um, and I also think at that age, it was also, you know, we won't get invited to parties. Like, I, you know, like in that level of like, you know, if if I say that this guy has done this, his friends are going to take his side and I'm going to be ostracized. So I think in a way it felt like denial was almost easier. And when we talk about denial, I think on a larger scale, it's very uncomfortable having these conversations because we want to believe that people who commit these kind of crimes are monsters. And we want to believe that if we saw one, that we would know one, you know? And I think it's very confronting to be like, oh, it's just someone's dad or it's just someone's brother or it's just someone's friend or, you know, it's this person who I work with and I really like them and I, I can't sort of reconcile those two realities, almost the cognitive dissonance that it takes to accept that someone could be a really kind friend to you, but has also raped someone. Um, and we see this particularly, I suppose, in, in victims where it's a family member that denial or silence is actually often demanded of them because it makes it easier for, for everybody else. Because as soon as you say, this has happened to me, everybody else has to take either a stand or they have to take a side or they have to take action in some way. So your silence, I think, makes their lives more comfortable. So I think there is that like almost pressure to stay quiet and pressure to kind of, I think, deny it just, you know, to yourself as well. Um, and it's just all very sad, you know, I, mean, I don't have any other kind of, you know, answer to that, but I think that's when we talk about denial. I think there, you know, there are so many factors that impact that. Yeah, I, I think so sad. I mean, your your response there of like, if this is, you know, a parent or a brother or something like that, you know, I'm reminded of a newspaper headline I read recently and it was like, man charged or found guilty of raping daughter for 16 years, described as fantastic father and family stood by him, described him as wonderful. And it's like, if you're that victim reading that, that must be just so crushing. So we have that like, that societal response as well of like it's not just the act that you have to deal with it's the fallout of of everything and when you're not a perfect victim you know a completely quote-unquote blameless victim you know then all this other stuff comes into it and you're, you have to try and navigate all of that I suppose Charlotte do you, do you have anything to say there on like kind of I suppose this societal approach and how we can mm. how we can address this I mean, something that's come up several times in the conversation is how, particularly as cisgender women, we all have these stories in various levels and in various ways, our stories, the stories uh, of those close to us. But it's not that cisgender men do not have those stories, but it's often that, you know, in the way that we, and I mean, stories in terms of being survivors uh, of sexual violence or abuse, but also being bystanders to, to action, to behavior um, as Katrina's play so mobilizes, right? And we could also talk about the character of Connor in um, Louise's asking for it in terms of the kind of positive role model or person attempting to, to act in a different way and regretting not having acted in a different 
way. So I suppose, you know, there is this kind of evergreen question of how do we solve sexual violence and also the evergreen question of how do we address, you know, cisgender men and heterosexual men, particularly within this conversation. I would say there's also another question of how do we make the work we do in this area more LGBTIQA plus inclusive, but to stay with the men's for a moment, I'm interested in your thoughts or or your experiences of, of male reactions to your work and what strategies you think are effective for continuing to bring men with us on this conversation as bystanders, as the majority of perpetrators. Maybe we have made progress. I'm not sure. Yeah, like I think that's a large reason why I wrote Duck Duck Goose. Um, I, I had written a play called Test Dummy, um, which was produced in 2016, which was a one woman show um, about uh, kind of looking at the kind of mother whore complex within women and just how uh, it, it was about uh, female sexuality and a, and a sexual history and um, it, it it was very deliberately again ambiguous and it was never accusatory but because it was a one-woman show <laughs> I had a lot of guys come out of that show going oh I've never felt uh, more shame to have a penis which I was kind of really affronted by because I had gone like out of my way to make it quite inclusive um, and I was really annoyed by that response because I was like just because it's a woman speaking, you are instantly thinking that she's attacking. And that's just not, it wasn't what the show was at all. Um, And had people had completely missed the point. Um, So I had kind of taken that and I was like, okay, well, how do I get? Um, And I suppose it wasn't me appeasing them. It was more kind of a, hmm, yeah, okay, I'll I'll see you and and I'll take you on that. Um, But I was like, how do I get them kind of on board in this conversation? Um, and I think that was a massive factor in why I framed that Duck uh, Duck Goose around young men and um, and their own actions within um, within an event uh, 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 like like rape or, or, or sexual assault. So I I think it's it's about I think it's and I I know I said this earlier, but like victim stories are so important. But until we're having a lot more stories examining their own role within it it's kind of like excluding them from the conversation a little bit because I think all they hear is I'm being attacked and I'm and while that's completely ridiculous and not right it's kind of until until it's it's more centered around them um I I I I, I think uh I think we're we're kind of facing an uphill battle um yeah I would totally agree with that um I often find when I'm you know giving talks or if I'm doing an event or if I'm at, like I was at this incredible event um organized by Safe Ireland it was a um, a summit and they had like the just the best speakers from all over the world and you look around the room and you think god there's two men here you know and at this at this summit with as I said some of the just the the most inspiring people who are working in the sector um and it's as if well that's a woman's issue and it's it's really frustrating because you know obviously men are are victims of uh, sexual and domestic violence as well, but like you know the perpetrators tend to be male, so it's like you they have to be part of this conversation, um, and it is a difficult one. Like when you're saying to me, what has the reaction been? I mean, not good. Like you know, and I mean it's always the same. I think you're you're kind of preaching to the converted. There are a lot of men out there who are really open to this conversation and who 
um, are, you know, really believe in gender equality and are really, I suppose, interested in interrogating their role in that in the same way that there are a lot of people, you know, white people who are very interested in sort of like dismantling white privilege. And, you know, and I think it's that, that they're actively trying to do that work. But yeah, some people just get some men and, and some white people, you know, get very defensive when you're when you're talking about those um, societal structures. And it's just really funny that you that we're even talking about this because I was looking, I wanted to find an old column that I had written. So I was Googling, you know, Louise O'Neill, Irish examiner and whatever the thing was. Um, and then it was, I think it was like boards.ie or, you know, something like this. And I never look at that stuff because I would never sleep again. I looked at it and it was just like hundreds of pages. And like the one thing that came up was, lads, do you think I should date a girl who's a Louise O'Neill fan? <laughs> But I felt like, like, yeah, you definitely should. It sounds like you need it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's that kind of defensiveness. And and it's very striking when, you know, I think, and I would have been the same, you know, with asking for it, like the, the two characters and asking for it that are absolutely on Emma's side are her best friend, um, one of her best friends who's a boy and her brother. So it really was this attempt to go like, you know, that this issue is sort of like outside of gender and, um and still, you know, I'm a man hater and I think that all men are rapists and, you know, like all of this like really reductive, um, really reductive language. But I know with the play of Asking For It, the Abbey did a, a programme where, where they went into schools um, and they sort of talked to the students around, uh, you know, the issues that are raised in the book and then brought them to see the play and then came back and had another workshop with them. And they went into a, you know, an all boys fee paying school rugby playing school and they said it was like really bleak the conversations that they had beforehand you know like girls do this kind of thing you know they they say that they raped you or that that you raped them and it, it's only they're looking for money and I thought where are 16 year old boys like getting that like what money do you have first of all and secondly you know it's like that that doesn't happen um and they said after they went to see the play that when they went back in to have this workshop, he said it was so different. And like that these boys were really talking about like their fear of being vulnerable and like their fear of being made fun of. And um, and I think the pressure that they were feeling, I suppose, to live up to these ideas of masculinity. And, and I just thought, yeah, they need this space. They need this space to talk about this and to be vulnerable and to be open. And, and because it's harming them as well like it's harming them that they feel that they can't have any emotion that doesn't like you know that isn't anger or that isn't um you know just fury you know it's like that they're not allowed to be sad or cry or you know any of these things like this is why male suicide rates are so high um so I think it's really trying to bring them into the conversation and allow them that space um to talk about their fears as well and to say that it's okay for them to have fears I think that's that's an excellent point like that that vulnerability is so healthy and natural and normalized and we should we should make that a lot more normalized um Katrina you want to come in there yeah I just wanted to because Louise is like absolutely on the money there and one thing I've noticed uh since uh me too and the conversation opening up is uh, talking to several of my uh, heterosexual cisgendered male friends who are now realizing that they may have been maybe if they're not quite ready to call it sexual assault that something has happened to them that they kind of have laughed off for years but keep coming back to and just that I think that those conversations are now happening where they are realizing themselves that actually no 
that girl doing that to me actually was not okay. And, um, and, but I think that that's a really positive thing that is, that is beginning to happen. And I, and I really hope happens more as well. Yeah, I think we found in some of our research as well, there's a lot of people or a lot of um, men who specifically who would say they don't think it's a big deal or they don't think they'd be believed, especially if it's a female perpetrator, because, you know, the gender norms and scripts that we have and, you know, that all men can't be victims. And and it's so toxic and stifling to people. Um, I'll go over to Charlotte there before we wrap up. And um, yeah. Oh, empathy. Observations on that, yeah. I suppose, more stats in that, you know, there was another study not done by us, but on intimate image abuse and the sharing of intimate images. And indeed, the study found that men in general do not think that that kind of sharing is as big a deal as do women, right? So we're, we're contending with that. And we're contending with these, these needs to make experiences and conversations that are, you know, use the words vulnerability and hard, right? And I'm also just want to mark or, or say in this conversation, you know, speaking about empathy, I have such empathy for the two of you in writing such incredible, brilliant, brave pieces of work and holding that, that weight in terms of the conversation conversations that are coming back to you but like we need works like this that shine that light on all these really uncomfortable places and give us spaces that maybe we can't all go to but many of us can go to and when you know again what we started the conversation with is you know in my opinion two of the most incredible works on this topic come from this country from the two of you and um thank you just thank you is what I want to say think that's an excellent note to um finish on and and just yeah to express our our gratitude for you for you both for putting that work out there in the world but also for talking to us today we really appreciate it um where can people find you if they want to follow what next masterpiece that you are going to publish um we'll head over to louise there um well i don't follow (laughs) just leave me alone okay um (laughs) you know i'm i suppose on instagram is probably the the best place because i'm not really on twitter anymore my my partner takes um, care of it but i have left that assessment um so yeah instagram is probably the the best place to find me so it's o'neill lou there's three l's in that okay perfect i'll try to remember that for a spelling (laughs) the joy of it and then katrina um, I, I unfortunately am still a Twitter addict. <laughs> so I'm uh, Katrina Daly, uh, one word on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I'm Katrina Emma Daly. Okay. Perfect. And if anyone wants to follow us, Active Consent, we are Active Consent everywhere um, on Twitter, on Instagram. And we're, we're newly kind of dipping our toes into the world of TikTok. So um, we want to thank all our listeners for giving us your, your ears today. Um, if you like what we have chatted about today, please do pop over to Apple and rate and review, or you can follow us on, on Spotify. It does help get the word out about the podcast and it helps other people find the podcast too. So that's all sorts of fun. And we will chat to you next time. Thank you so much. Bye.